It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, January the 19th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Welcome back, everybody. Just 48 hours since our last emergency podcast. I think after a wild week, um, I wanted to come back to you with the regularly scheduled Sunday show. As I said on Friday when we were talking about the Carlos Beltran situation, here we thought we were just going to have some downtime between now and the Super Bowl, uh, maybe do some you know loose ends type of analysis and talk, do some throwback Thursdays, which I still plan on doing another this coming Thursday, and, uh, and head into pitchers and catchers. And then all this chaos happens on Monday. Uh, A.J. Hinch gets fired, Jeff Lunnell gets fired, Alex Cora gets fired, and then the Mets cave and fired Carlos Beltran. And here we are on January the 19th, and the Mets need a new manager, and we'll talk about that. Also going to have a guest, our friend Joe Casal, contributor to the show. Joe's a, an agent. He's been in media. Uh, he's done a lot around the game, very plugged in. Um, he was on Ed uh, Berliner's podcast, uh, which we'll have him talk about in just a little bit. And, and Joe was on it, I think, about a year ago when we, were, when we were talking about the Players Association. And as someone who's been in both media and on the agenting side, uh, I go to him uh, during times like this because I really think he's going to give you an interesting perspective and pr- maybe a little bit different than I. And I think that was one of the criticisms from the last podcast that I had gotten is that because I was trying to piece this together and really get something out, it's hard to get all my thoughts out and then, you know, get somebody to come on and maybe give a different point of view. But I think Joe is that guy. I've been thinking long and hard about who to bring on. I think Joe is that guy. You'll hear from him in just a minute. We'll get into, obviously, the Mets managerial search. We'll get into the sign stealing. Um, We're also going to get in, you know, Jessica Mendoza of ESPN made some comments. She's also a special advisor to Brody Van Wagen in the Mets front office. Uh, And I've always had issues with media members also uh, moonlighting as uh, executives or advisors to professional sports teams within their league. And I think this is an example, and you'll hear those comments if you haven't heard them in just a little bit. But here's what I'll start off with with regards to Beltran. Now that some time has passed, you know, heels are, you know, wounds are starting to heal. And look, we all have to agree it's time to move forward. You know, we'll do some more look back. I think the sign-stealing situation will die down. I think more stuff will come out, but I think in general you're going to start to see the uh, fervor for that, especially from the media, die down uh, with the Hall of Fame announcement, which, by the way, I'm going to give you, uh, before we wrap up here, uh, the last segment will be uh, my Hall of Fame ballot, and, and I'm going to try to make it as concise as possible because uh, I was thinking about it all day. And uh, with that announcement and with the Mets looking for a manager, you really can't just do a Hall of Fame show. I mean, everything has really been thrown topsy-turvy. So, um, you know, with the Hall of Fame coming up, I th- I think quite simply this is going to start to die down. Now, if new information comes out or there's new sanctions against the Red Sox, I mean, all bets are off. But 
from a Mets point of view, the the punishment has been handed down, the Mets caved, and and away we go. And here's what I do know, and I've been talking to some people who I trust and really getting their take, and I do know that Carlos Beltran wanted to stay. I told you that on Friday, and I've confirmed that multiple times. He wanted to stay. He wanted to fight. Uh, I do believe that there were many in the Mets organization that were ready to support him, including guys like Omar Minaya and uh, potentially Brody Van Wagenen. I do not think ownership had the stomach for what the media furor would be and potentially what the frown from the Major League Baseball Commissioner's Office would be. Now, I also know in talking to some people that Carlos was heavily involved in 2017 in Houston with the sign stealing. As a DH, as an active player, not that he was a coach, but his role, because he wasn't really playing the field, uh, involved a lot of downtime in the dugout. So uh, the, the description of him as a pseudo-coach, I guess, is pretty appropriate. Again, he wasn't in a position of authority, but he was there and he was uh, a big part of that. So uh, we've also read that maybe there'll be some players on the team, guys like Edwin Diaz and also Jacob deGrom, that uh, have some issues with this. I mean, I think there's a lot of speculation out there right now. And quite honestly, I think you got to be real careful about what you take as gospel and what you take as opinion, because I'm very honest about when I'm given an opinion and, and maybe when I have some information. But of course, I'm always very upfront on this program that this is my opinion, this is my show, and, and keep that in mind as we go throughout each and every podcast throughout the, the season and even now. So with that, definitely Carlos wanted to stay. He is uh, beyond frustrated, I know that about what happened, hurt, uh, and I know that there's a lot of questions about what his future in baseball will be. I do believe he will eventually make the Hall of Fame, but I think it might take a little longer because of his um, because of his role in this. I, I think he's a borderline Hall of Famer as it is. Um, I think being a successful manager, being in the public public eye would have helped him. I think now it might take him a little bit more time. It is debatable whether he's a Hall of Famer. I know that. Um, it, it's not a shoo-in, but I think there was more leaning towards it, uh, especially because of, of how well he was regarded as his position as a coach and advisor and, and what he would have brought to the Mets. So, you know, where do the Mets go from here? And I know you're hearing a lot of stuff. And I'm going to tell you, I know nothing. I don't know anything. I don't have any insight. What I do believe is going to happen, and the only logical thing, is if you follow the progression since October, and forget about what you're reading on any SNY site or any blog or what the mainstream beat writers are writing. Everyone's throwing names out and speculating. And and the new word is could. Could. Well, you know, could means anything. You know, it could snow tomorrow. Doesn't mean it will. Doesn't mean I know it will. It could. So when you start to see could means I'm just speculating. I don't have anything, but I want to make sure I sound professional and I want to make sure it sounds like it's a rumor. So here's what I'll do. The Mets from day one had two options, as we've talked about many times, go experienced or go with a front office appointee. They went with a front office appointee. They they interviewed Joe Girardi. They didn't want to go in that direction. They never looked at Dusty Baker. They never looked at Buck Showalter. Uh, They looked at a number of candidates that would have been front office new faces, and they went with Carlos Beltran. And then they surrounded him with a staff of, you know, experience in different types of ways, guys like a Tony DeFrancisco, uh, 
uh, who who can be a uh, you know the manager, the sage. Uh, you have uh, you know Hensley Mullins, who's been a bench coach. You have Jeremy Hefner handling the pitching. So you you have a, a ton of guys that uh, already on the staff that uh, uh, could could have helped Carlos in, in many different ways. I can't see how you could bring in a Buck Showalter or a Dusty Baker and change right now your whole mindset with less than a month left before pitchers and catchers report. Especially guys who are strong-willed. Brody is a strong-willed guy. One of the things that uh, he said during his press conference is he wanted somebody that he could collaborate with, somebody that he didn't have to hold his breath walking into the manager's office. Look, Dusty Baker and Buck Showalter, they're not going to want to deal with the front office. They're going to want to say, "This is I'm going to I'll keep your coaches because it's already almost February, but I'm going to run the team my way." And each is a different type of guy. I know Buck is a detailed-oriented guy, but of a taskmaster. I think uh, Dusty is also a disciplinarian, but more of a motivator and a guy that in a short period of time uh, could give a team a jolt. I think those guys are good for the Astros and where they're at. I do not think those guys are fits for what the Mets want to do or what they have set up. That's why I think it's going to be one of three guys. I think it's going to be either Hensley Mullins. I think it potentially could be Luis Rojas. And Tony Francesco could be uh, uh, the most logical because he has managerial experience, albeit very little major league managerial experience, but um, tons of uh, minor league managerial experience. So I have a feeling, keep an eye on that name, that that would happen. Now, one of the uh, things that are floating around is how, how much the organization likes Luis Rojas. Now, they passed on him during the interview process, and I think part of it is, like I said in October, Mets need to be right about this. And I've really thought about this, I've marinated on this, and I said, did I really break it down on Friday's podcast because the emotions were still flowing the best way? And and I really do think I did. I don't think anything has changed right now, in my opinion. Uh, there's nothing to indicate that it would be a good idea, even to go Joe McEwing, Tim Bogar, uh, guys outside the organization, even though those would still fit as a front office guy, I think the fact that Beltron worked with the front office to bring in coaches that he was comfortable with that fit his philosophy, uh, most importantly, I think the front office uh, used his advice, but I think uh, it was really front office driven. You don't know how these guys are going to mesh. You know how the coaching staff at this point has meshed. Uh, you don't know how these guys are going to mesh. Uh, so I really think you could come from within. Now, the only concern I'd have with Rojas and you see a lot of people say, you know, he's a, he's a rising star. And I'm always careful with that because there was a guy named Ken Maka that uh, was a rising star at one time in, as a manager. And, and if you look him up, he never really amounted to much. He's always been a rising star. Ray Knight as a manager was a rising star at one point. You know, there's plenty of guys out there that were rising stars and turned into flops as uh, managers. Jeff Torborg, there's an example of a guy who came from Chicago, a rising star, turned into be a very bad manager and, and had issues throughout his career in, in that role. If Luis Rojas, because he is familiar and he has the respect of the players, but if he can transition as the quality control coach and and into an authoritative position as a manager, handle the media, he already knows the organization, he knows a great deal of these players, including minor league players that will make contributions throughout the season, uh, I'm, I'm sure he knows DeFrancisco. I'm sure he's familiar now with these coaches, even though some of these guys are new. 
he might make the most sense. And you may have just stumbled into the Mets version of when the Knicks fired Donnie uh, Nelson and and hired Jeff Van Gundy. Nobody, if Twitter was around back then, I said this on Friday, nobody would have wanted Van Gundy as the manager. Nobody. So uh, I think that's where this is going to go. If you And that's risky. If you want to take a little less risk out of it, you have uh, DeFrancesco. I think Hensley Mullins, uh, you know, you could go that route, and maybe he's in, in line for another managerial job. But I think one of those two guys who have been in the organization prior to this year uh, would be more desirable to me than someone coming from the outside, coming in. Uh, I think Mullins as a bench coach, uh, because he's had that position, provides a lot of value because whoever it is, may may need something like that. Now, I threw a wild scenario out, and I still believe it's something to keep an eye on because I think out of all the guys uh, who have been uh, hurt by this, A.J. Hinch might come out of this because there seems to already be. Tim Brown over at Yahoo wrote an article already indicating that uh, some of the members of the media, he's the first. Uh, Andy Martino came out as well uh, about this feel that the Astros players who essentially used a, a very cold, uh, tone-deaf PR stance, not surprised at their fan fest on Saturday, to say, hey, things happen, we'll move on. There was a certain amount of, you know, sympathy towards A.J. Hinge saying, hey, this guy, if the reports are true, tried to stop it, was overruled by management, was overruled by his own players. Not really a good look for a manager, in my opinion. And the one thing in that article that Tim Brown over at Yahoo said that really stuck with me, I will say it's a real black mark towards any time uh, I would I would support a manager is that he, he didn't like people being mad at him. And as a manager in any position, in any walk of life, people are going to be mad at you. And you have to accept that. And you have to not worry about it. So if that was one of the driving reasons for why he wasn't more forceful and stopping what was going on, that's a big indictment on A.J. Hinch, who, mind you, was fired from his first position. Didn't really uh, do well with the Arizona Diamondbacks. And sometimes when guys don't connect with people, they come back in their second position, and they tend to be more capitulating, for lack of a better word. Uh, I don't know if that's the perfect word, but that's the word I was thinking of. And it made me think, well, if this is the guy that everybody, and, and this is the guy that Brody wanted, I, I really, I have some information that I wouldn't call rock solid, but pretty good, that they wanted to make a run at him, and it just wasn't going to happen. Houston wasn't going to let it happen. And imagine if Houston had an inkling that, and that goes to show you, if Houston had an inkling that this was going to go down as bad as it did, I think they might <laughs> let him walk and get some assets from him. Although that, who knows if the commissioner would have overturned that or allowed that. Who, who knows at that point, but uh, that's the guy that Brody wanted, and I really believe if things, and I'm not saying things have to go bad for him to make that change, if the Mets need to make that next step, if they have a good year, but they're still not getting over the hump, or some of these young players need to get over the hump, I really believe A.J. Hinch, depending on how the suspension and how all this stuff works out, I'm assuming that being fired and being out of the league in a calendar year would count as a suspension, Um which would go into January, but enough for you know you to be ready for spring training next year. I think AJ Hinch might be the guy that uh, will be the future Mets manager as long as Brody Van Wagenen is still in charge. Do not discount that. I really believe that's something to think about. But right now, DeFrancisco, Rojas, um, I would put Mullins in there. 
But I think it's going to be one of those guys. And I think DeFrancisco and or Rojas would be the guy. And I think the real debate within the Mets organization is can the young Rojas handle the media? He certainly seems to be a guy that knows the organization and could be plug and play as a front office guy. And, and, and they would know better how his relationship with the players would translate into that more authoritative role from quality control coach. He certainly is versed in analytics. He's been up and down the organization. Uh, it seems perfect. He's young. And maybe he's a future star. Maybe this all this bad stuff that the Mets seem to have just stumbled into and everyone's making fun of them and, and making it about, well, LOL Mets, so to speak. Maybe they'll win in the long run and get a manager that would have been the best guy, but because of age and because of the fact that maybe the Beltron was a known quantity as far as his relationship with the team and as a player, maybe they make the right choice out of a bad situation. Who knows? So that's where I think we're at with the managerial search. I think we're going to have some news this week, and I think it uh, will come rather soon. So uh, stay tuned for more of that. Uh, as the week goes on. Hey, let's take a quick break. When we return, I want to do a quick hit here about media and media working for teams and the hypocrisy and conflicts of interest. Real quick hit before we get to our friend Joe Joe Casal, contributor to the show, a former agent, member of the media, uh, really a good contributor, knows a lot about how this this, this stuff works. And I think he's going to give you a, a different take than I have about where I really blame MLB for all this and the media fake outrage for all this. And there's more, and you'll hear some clips later, especially from Ryan Buckter of the uh, Athletics, where the media uh, really dropped the ball on this story uh, for a while. So anyway, uh, we'll talk more about that. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. You have a problem with Mike Fires leaving the Astros, going to another team, and then going public with this? Going public, yeah. I mean, I get it. If you're if you're with the Oakland A's and you're on another team, I mean, heck yeah, you better be telling your teammates, look, hey, heads up, if you hear some noises when you're pitching, like, this is right. what's going right. on, for sure. But to go public, yeah, that it didn't sit, sit well with me. And honestly, it made me sad for the sport that that's how this all got found out. I mean, this wasn't something that MLB naturally investigated or that even other teams complained about because they naturally heard about and then investigations happened. But it it came from within. It was a player that was a part of it, that benefited from it during the regular season when he was a part of that team. And, And that, when I first heard about it, it's just, it hits you like any teammate would, right? It's it's something that you don't do. I totally get telling your future teammates, helping them win, letting people know. But to go public with it and call them out and start all of this, it's it's hard to swallow. All right, we're back, and you heard Jessica Mendoza there speaking with Mike Golick. And I'm going to make this quick because I want to get to Joe Casal, and I think he'll have something to say. We're not going to make it a big part of it. But, you know, the Mets, when they hired Jessica Mendoza, if you want to be progressive, if you want to be – uh, at the forefront and bring in uh, somebody different that can help you as an advisor with your minor league players, you know, maybe give you some experience of what she uh, has done in her career. I know she didn't play professional baseball, but she was an Olympic athlete. I don't have any problem. She's obviously bringing something to the Mets organization, and the Mets are trying to be progressive with, you know, how they go about filling out their uh, management team, you know, that's a big thing now. You know, San Francisco Giants bringing a female to their coaching staff. That's the way of the world. You want to have, be as diverse as possible. If the person's qualified and they can bring something different and they're not just there because of their gender or their color, I don't have any problem with that. 
Um, but I do have a problem, and I've had a problem for a long time, and I was very vocal about this on Twitter back when Magic Johnson was owner of the Dodgers and advisor to the Lakers and on NBA TV, and I'm like, yo, there's a problem here. And people go, well, it's Magic Johnson. He could do whatever he wants. Okay, so be it. Obviously, I got overshadowed because a Hall of Fame guy, a guy who's done a tremendous amount in the business world, uh, a guy that has been a positive uh, face of the HIV virus, uh, has, uh, you know, I guess a right to have a conflict of interest, which I, do, I don't agree with. And he was bad at his job. Uh, they had him on because he was Magic Johnson. And, and even as time went on when he was working for the Lakers, and I don't know what his ownership position with the Dodgers is, I'm like... I just don't get how you can go on these media outlets. And Magic's gotten himself in trouble on these media outlets as time has gone on, not as in the capacity of a pregame show, but even as interviews with collusion with players and things like that. And I'm saying the league's got to do something about it. And what boggles my mind is that ESPN, the ultimate in hypocrisy, wouldn't tell their announcers, you know, if you're going to work for us, and I understand it's just a Sunday night gigs. I don't know what the pay is, and maybe it can't be. I'm sure it's well enough uh, to be a very good paying uh, living. But you know what? If you're going to do other things, here's the things in your contract you can't do. You can't advise or work in the front offices of the teams we cover in this league. You want to go work at the NBA? Jessica Mendoza, you could go advise the Lakers if there's something that you could provide them. You want to go work in the NHL? So be it. You want to you know, do a uh, fantasy camp uh, and get paid for that, so be it. You want to make a speech uh, to season ticket holders, fine. You can't be an advisor. You can't. These are the activities you can't do. And then you avoid what you heard. Now, I understand how Mendoza is basically saying, keep it in the clubhouse. And um, I have some questions myself about how, you know, for how a fires goes out two years later, and now all of a sudden has this conscience. Uh, it would have been nice as a leader, and, and maybe he wasn't a big enough voice on that team or some of the leaders on that team, if they were that outraged about it, to do something about it. Uh, but that's a whole different story. But the main thing is you guys got to start to realize this goes for Outlider as well, MLB Network and advisor for the Mets. You can't do that. MLB Network is uh, an entity that should be covering the sport. You're going to be interviewing players. You're going to be in the clubhouses of other teams. I know teams have had issues with Mendoza in the clubhouse. Uh, I think it was the Dodgers uh, won't let her in. Uh, I'm like saying to myself, is this really worth it? Uh, if you want to be the first uh, female in a front office that has an impact, if that's the goal that she has, or she aspires to be in a front office, then you got to give up the gig on ESPN. It sounds like that might happen involuntarily because they're looking at David Cohn now. And mark my words, the PC crowd's going to say, well, you replaced Jessica Mendoza with a, with a white male. Well, you know what? I want the ESPN baseball team or any uh, analyst team to be the best three or four, whatever the damn booth they want, people. Not the most recognizable name, the best baseball broadcasters that bring insight. And I think Coney would do a great job because he's analytically inclined. He's got a pretty good dis disposition and, and he's got a little bit of a sense of humor. I think he does a nice job with the Yankees. And I'd love to hear him outside of the Yes broadcast and, and get his take uh, when he's on uh, the broadcast on Sunday, especially as a former pitcher who's very insightful. So anyway, that's how you fix it. This is created by the league's the media doesn't take umbrage with this when there's clear conflicts of interest because, well, that's Magic Johnson. He could do it. Well, no, he can't. He's with the Dodgers as an owner. He's with the Lakers as a as an advisor. And he's on uh, 
uh, analyzing whatever the game is of the week with the NBA? How is that right? And why should he be involved with all these guys that potentially could be free agents? Same thing with Jessica Mendoza. Why would I want her in my locker room? I wouldn't want her in my locker room. And look, this is an anti-Mets position. The Mets, the Mets are wrong, but the real entity that's wrong is ESPN for allowing. Because the Mets are just saying, hey, it's allowed under your ESPN contract, so here's how we're going to handle it. But I, as a GM, and this is where I'll criticize Brody, I'd be uncomfortable with it because, yes, in the sense of competition, who cares? Those are the, the, the enemy. But I was like, how would I feel if that person was coming in my clubhouse? Now, maybe you say it's benign. They're advisors. What are they going to glean? Sometimes the biggest secrets are unveiled by the lowest level people in an organization. The janitors sometimes who sweep the floors uncover things and scandals could come outside of it. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's all amazing how the simplest thing could set off a firestorm. And uh, and that's what I feel about that. All right, let's take a break. When I return, Joe Casal, sports media consultant, former agent, contributed to the show. Let's talk about the sign stealing, what his thoughts are. The MLB did nothing. Uh, what does he think about this uh, conflict of interest that uh, has come about with respect to uh, Jessica Mendoza? And I'm going to play Ryan Buckter of the o- Oakland Athletics, a relief pitcher, was on the Howard Stern wrap-up show with Gary Delabate and John Hine. And I'm curious, a lot of interesting things came out of his comments, and I'm curious to hear what Joe has to, st- has to say. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. Well, we're back, and joining me is Joe Casal. Joe's a former agent. He's a sports business consultant, knows a ton of media. We had him on about a year ago when the Players Association and Major League Baseball were you know, having what they still are having their issues. And I thought, what better guy to bring on right now than somebody who's been on the player side, who's been on the media side, uh, really understands the business of baseball, and it's Joe Casal. And Joe, welcome to the program. And uh, this has been, I, I was thinking of this this past week, Bill Belichick press conference, Billy Martin nonsense with George Steinbrenner. It's like a blast from the past, not in a, a good way, but just wild, really. I, I never thought I'd see this in the modern sports world. It's been a pretty wild week. I think it's it's a confluence of so many events. It's the if you're not cheating, you're not trying crowd. It's how do we control technology? Um, I mean, it's almost like there there are life lessons beyond baseball with each thing that has been going on, and it, it has been quite a week for the sport. And um, it's it doesn't seem like it's going to quiet down any because. One of the things that I'm noticing in this is unlike the PED scandal where the players were pretty quiet by and large, these guys are all taking the social media and a lot of them have real strong opinions and they're going to carry those opinions into spring training. And so I, and, and we also have the Red Sox investigation going on. So 
I suspect this is not the end of something. It's going to be the be- it's really the beginning. Joe Casal joining me. He's a contributor to this program. Uh, you could also check him out. He was on Ed Berliner's podcast, the the fastest the fastest show in sports. Ed, uh, former uh, network news anchor, and has done a bunch of stuff in media. Uh, Joe, I'm going to play. It's a bit of a long clip. It's about four minutes, but I think you'll find it interesting, and maybe you've heard it. Uh, this is a compilation of some quotes from Ryan Buckter of The Athletics on the Howard Stern wrap-up show with John Hine and uh, Gary Delabate, also affectionately known as Baba Bowie. And you wouldn't expect the Howard Stern show on Sirius to dive into this. That shows you how big it is. But take a listen to what Ryan Buckter said, and I think you'll, uh, you'll appreciate and, and find it quite interesting what, what he had to say. It's not 2017 um, that we're talking about. That's when they won. And that's not when it started. There's video all the way back to 2014 of them doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still going on today. As of you know this year, it was still going on. We would go into Houston. We would have multiple sets of signs. And by the third inning, and every sign, it wasn't like a whole team has our signs. Everybody has individualized signs. By the third inning, they had our signs. They had our, we would change the signs in between innings. They had our signs. They, they would watch it. There was a rumor that they had a NASA scientist uh, that created a program because they are from Houston down there. Yeah. He created a program that could decipher what sign we were using in less than three pitches. When you, um, when so you, it didn't matter what sequence that we used. They got it. Ryan, when you were out there on the mound pitching there, could you hear the trash can banging? Were you aware that that was the system that they were actually using to tip off when you were throwing an off-speed pitch versus a fastball? We, we were on the mound, and we heard whistles. We heard bangs. We heard a lot of things going on, and we, we tried to do our best to you know, combat what was going on. And, and we called MLB about it multiple times. We called MLB multiple times. And this is why Mike Fires isn't a rat, and this is why Mike Fires shouldn't be labeled as a rat, is we literally had called – MLB multiple times about this. We had video footage. We had information on them, and nothing was done. The Yankees called out, called them out. Nothing was done. The Red Sox had called them out. Nothing was done. The White Sox, who were a terrible team in 2017, called them out, and nothing was done. So, w- what would it take for us to go into Houston and play on a level playing field? Mm. But, but and Ryan, that, and this is what it would. But Ryan, to go to John's point, I agree with everything you just said that everybody complained, everybody knew that was going that was going on. So John's point is, okay, fine. Why did he wait two years to tell everybody about it? Why did he say something while he was there? Yeah, well, I mean that's AJ Hinch's thing too. AJ Hinch got fired and, and said I just I destroyed the monitor three times and mm-hmm. they put it back up. I mean that. When you're there and you're in the moment, would I do it? Absolutely. Do you know how much money we're talking about? If I was on Houston, I would bang on that trash can like I was playing in Phil Collins' band. I, I would not. <laughs> uh, you know? but, but, then, but, then, but, Ryan, why, then why didn't you guys do that? Because we don't – you know, it costs money, and, and uh, it's not something that people want to spend all the time. But it's, <laughs> it's very, very – I mean, there was rumors about it um, – People bragged about it, and I don't want to go throwing names out there and throwing people under the bus, but when you go into Houston, you're not playing on a level playing field. Right. You, have, you go in there, you throw a fastball, you know, letter high at the chest, and they foul it off. Then you throw a slider down and away, and they, they take it like they knew it was coming. Well, in our minds, we would say, like, hey, man, that was a good pitch, but they really knew it was coming. Mm. <laughs> um, it, it's just – Again, we're talking about a lot of money to to win the World Series. You get an extra five, four, five hundred thousand dollars in January. 
that you weren't expecting that I didn't get. Um, and, and, you know, Alex Cora got that twice. Yeah. Think about it. He got it with the Astros and he got it with the, he got it with the Red Sox. It's something had to be done. Somebody had to step up. Now, Mike is the only one that had the big enough balls to put his name involved. And I'm, you know, not nothing against those other guys, but Mike's taking a lot of heat. Yeah. But Mike also, and knowing Mike and playing with him, and I had a good conversation with Mike and, and not to expose like our personal, you know, guidelines, but, you know, I asked him, I said, Hey, you know, when you're nobody, everybody's talking about how you're a rat and how you're, you know, throwing everybody under the bus, everybody in baseball loves you because now we get to beat the Astros and, and play on a level level playing field. But you are going to suffer consequences possibly too. And he said, the first thing I told MLB in my interview was that I will give up my ring. I will give the money back and I will take whatever suspension that anybody else on that team gets. Joe, there's a lot to unpack there. I wanted to get your reaction. Well, I, I agree that Mike Fires is not a rat. I think we, we live in an era today of whataboutism, and, and a lot of people don't understand the origin of whataboutism. Whataboutism was a KGB 1960s Soviet style of propaganda to justify um, their behavior and their decisions within the regime the communist regime. So when people start saying, well, what about this team or what about that team or what about this? They were blatantly cheating. Everyone was complaining to Major League Baseball, but Major League Baseball did nothing about it. It wasn't until Mike Fires went public that baseball had no other choice but to do something about it. And here is the problem of waiting as long as baseball did. They were in a position of having to give the players immunity to get them to speak for two reasons. One, it was the most expeditious way to find out exactly what was going on because clearly the management in Houston was not forthcoming with what was happening. But the other part is they're trying to negotiate a new labor agreement with the players. It has been a very contentious period of time. There have been some instances over the last several months where some of that is thawing. So if Manfred goes in there and starts wiping out players, especially if he ever reneged, which he won't, on any immunity agreements, it just becomes a storm that's going to lead to a work stoppage. So, so basically, this, Carlos, Beltran, you, Carlos Beltran is the guy that's going to represent all the players is basically what it comes down to. Him losing well, his job. what that's, ended up okay. happening, but there's a reason for that. I think Beltran was singled out in the report because they found Beltran was not forthcoming. If he, if he, that they didn't believe his story, which is the reason why they outed him. And he was in that nebulous situation of being a player in 2017 and now a manager in 2019. I had remarked earlier in the week, I had written earlier in the week, when people were questioning whether he could remain manager of the Mets, and my, my thought process was, if he was honest with the Mets during the hiring process, and he said, look, this is what I told Major League Baseball, I told them the truth, dot, 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 and the Mets still hired him, then they have no reason to fire him because they knew all of this going in. But now it depends on who do you believe. The Mets are saying we never spoke to him about, about this, which I find hard to believe because you can't say on the one hand you've conducted an exhaustive search, 
and on the other hand, not bring up this conversation uh, because everybody I heard, in baseball. Really yeah, I heard smart. it's not necessarily true that they. I think they talked to him and glazed it. I think. I don't think anybody thought how serious this was. Look, I don't think the Astros planned, even at the beginning of this investigation, to fire A.J. Hinch and Jeff Lunau. You figure they lose some draft picks. They lose, um, you know, maybe they get suspensions. I don't think anybody thought of firings. And I wonder if Jim Crane doesn't fire his guys and says, all right, you're suspended. I'll see you next year. I wonder if the other firings happen of Alex Cora and uh, Beltran. It's a really good question, I thought. I think it was kind of a I think one of the games that was always played within the walls is that it seemed to me that baseball positioned Jim Crane to fire these guys to preserve Jim Crane's reputation. Um, because, look, there are there's history in baseball suspending owners. And the question a lot of people are asking now is why wasn't Jim Crane suspended? I mean, George Steinbrenner was suspended twice from baseball. Um, and the question was, why isn't Jim Crane suspended? And it seemed to me that Manfred positioned Crane and probably maybe didn't tell him to fire these guys, but kind of inferred, like, you know, this is the course of action you have to take if you are going to project the image of we are cleaning things up, we're going to play by the rules, blah, blah, blah. Because all of this, whenever stuff like this happens, I always laugh when people say, well, the owner had no idea what was going on. Well, then you're telling me he doesn't know how to run a business. So how did he become a billionaire? These guys know everything that's going on. You know, even the whole smashing the monitor story always cracks me up because what you're saying is A.J. Hinch is saying, look, I didn't like any of this. I smashed the monitor. So Alex Cora on his own went completely rogue and, and decided to keep doing it anyway, and you didn't know. Come on, says I mean, a lot just, about. That, well, it says a lot about Hinch. I don't know. Did you read the Tim Brown story at Yahoo? Because I think Hinch is going to be the one guy that could come back the fastest on this because I think he's likable. Now, the red flag in that article is that Tim Brown talked about how Hinch doesn't like to be disliked. Big red flag as a manager. Now, remember, this is a guy that lost his job in Arizona. This is a guy that was lauded as a really great manager, and this is a guy that I have pretty good info. If there was a pathway, I think Brody Van Wagen wanted to bring him from Houston over to New York, and I don't think that could have happened because of the contract. And I wonder is as things die down and if the media elects to make him somewhat of a sympathetic figure, and it started because I think they felt that the Astros players were a bit callous during their fan fest yesterday. I wonder if he, he – you know, he has maybe a guy – uh, that but it would hire him again. And it's such a red flag because if that's the case, that Cora went rogue, what does that say about your management skills? I mean, to me, the owner is up in the ivory tower. Yes, you're right, Joe. He should be more plugged in on his team. But Jim Crane has other businesses, and he hires people to do the details. And and I think he knew more than, than obviously let on, but the manager should know everything. I mean, especially in this day. No no that's question. Part. And, I, and I think he knew everything. I mean, I look, I've known Alex Cora since his – days at the, as a player at the University of Miami, I find it hard to believe that that Alex Cora just went rogue and no one knew what was going on and A.J. didn't know what was going on. I mean, these guys were cheating their brains out. I mean, it was a talk of it. In, inside baseball, that's all they talked about. And then really, even if you look at the numbers, you look at the OPS and slugging of guys home on a road splits, 
you knew something was up. I mean, I, I could tell you it was it was something that guys actively talked about within the game. You know, I'm not ready to get on board with the buzzer stuff. I don't buy that. I need to see a whole lot of evidence on that. And showing some picture on Twitter is not evidence. I there's there's just a lot there that went on. And really, baseball let it pass for too long. And where it hurt them is they couldn't punish the players because they're trying to negotiate a new CBA. And it's just too close to it. If you're three or four years out of a CBA, yeah, you can pop guys for 50 or 60 games. You're not popping them that. And so no. guys are going to get hit. Cora got hit. Um, obviously, Beltran got hit. You know, Hinch. And I think eventually those guys – will make their way back into the game. They usually do it by going through broadcasting. I mean, look, people have short memories. Alex Rodriguez was a pariah in baseball, an absolute pariah. And now he's the face of baseball for two networks. So you to say that these guys will never make it back into the game, I'm not ready to say that. But I do think it's going to take a while because I think the Red Sox investigation is going to, shine a light on all of this again. And, and so it's going to stay newsy for a longer period of time. There, there's two entities that I'm annoyed with. The first is baseball, because, again, if you listen to Buckter, it, it, it was going on as early as 2014. You have said what I've heard a lot of people say. There's chatter around the game. Uh, everybody with an iPhone could watch a game and watch different uh, uh, replays. You know, you watch a game while the reliever's warming up. There's an iPad on the on-deck circle with a guy watching his at-bats. To not be proactive on this and just send out a memo after the Apple uh, iWatch issue with the Yankees and the Red Sox, uh, you know, it's typical baseball. Let me let me do a a memo, and everybody's going to stop because I'm really going to punish you. How's that worked for them over the last few years? And then the media, and I'm looking at Eno Saris of Fangrab saying, well, you know, I had a lot of players, and I know nobody wanted to go on the record, but this was talked about for a long time. Well, yes, you can't give up a source. I completely get that. But there's ways of doing stories and getting information and getting momentum out there. They waited until it was easy, which makes me wonder, Joe, and I'm going to give you the third prong on this. This all started with Tobman. Tobman did a jerky thing exposed what a jerky organization he works for. They were behaving badly all year with the media. So they were going to dig on this team for a while. So are you mad about the sign stealing? Or are you mad about the team that did it? Because I think the Dodgers do it. I wouldn't be surprised if the Yankees do it. I mean, there's a lot of teams. And there's a lot of times during the season I said, something's not right. You know, they're on their pitches. And um, I think that – I just think this is bigger – than what the simplicity of, well, we punish the three guys, let's move on. I think the media should be ashamed of themselves. Again, I think baseball shows themselves to be weak. Um, and, and I think Taubman, I think that whole incident really started. You know, World War I was started with an assassination. I hate to use that analogy, but think about it. Small things lead to bigger things when you really think about it. Well, I think, I think there are several layers to this. I think the Astros were put on a pedestal by the analytic community as the bell cow. And, and this is not an anti-data statement. It's that people today, and, and people in the media as well as people in baseball, they're holding jobs by you know, holding on to the rope of analytics. I mean, this is, 
you know, this is what it's all about. This is, you know, you're not a real baseball executive unless you can, you know, you're analytically driven and, and all of this stuff. And the Astros were held up on this pedestal as the team doing it, you know, they're, they're so much more advanced than everyone else. And I, I use the hedge fund analogy that you look at a lot of these hedge fund guys, they're not brilliant finance financiers. They've developed programs that give them an edge that plays right up to the line. And in some cases cross it uh, in the financial markets. And that's what the Astros did. And so they were blatant cheaters but in order to expose them, you're gonna you're going after the bell cow that you put out there as the, you know, as the thing that everyone should strive to, and it and it made it very difficult for analytically driven baseball writers to go there. And really, that's Mike Fires going public changed the entire paradigm because once you had an active player say this is what's going on, you couldn't sweep it under the rug anymore. You couldn't say, well, this is just, you know, a bitter former player who had a 9 ERA in Houston and he doesn't care. I mean, this no, this is the guy who's throwing no hitters. He's telling you exactly what went on. And so it left baseball with no choice but to dig in deeper. And, yeah, I think did the, the, the Taubman thing lead to this? I think it certainly shined a light because his behavior was, was another thing that was off the rails. And so – the Ast- but the Astros themselves kept pushing the envelope more and more as if they were above the game. And, and, that, and you know, it was just going to be a matter of time before somebody spoke out or something happened. And, you know, a series of events took place. An active player speaks out and you have what you have. You know, do I, and I agree with you, do I think this, investigation is tied up in a nice little bow and there's only a handful of people involved? No, I don't. I mean, that's just absurd. I think that there was a don't ask, don't tell policy within the clubhouse with the players. I think there was certainly A.J. Hinch took the, you know, the kind of don't tell me what's going on, I'm not going to look to my left kind of attitude. Um, you know, right. I, I mean, everyone was complicit there. And, and really, you know, when we talk about the guys that can make comebacks from, from it all, you know, Mike, the guys that fall on the sword the most and show real contrition um, are the guys that can make comebacks. If you're just going to yeah. go out and play what about games, you know, what about what about ism or say these guys do it and I have no proof or I just did what everybody else did. If you just – you know, if I look at Jeff Luno's statement and he's blaming low-level staffers, I'm saying that's a guy that's never going to work in baseball again. Because if that's your approach, then you're done. Um, if your approach is to be more contrite, I mean, I think Carlos Beltran's going to work in baseball again. And I, and I think that um, someone will hire him and, and, and he will be his, – his acts of contrition will be, you know, a, a lot more accepted by the media because they like Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran's a good guy who did a bad thing, and that happens. But I think it's the guys that just get defiant. You know, I watched some of the clips in with of the Houston Fan Fest yesterday, and I'm saying to myself, Altuve and Alex Bregman are going to get hit by a lot of pitchers this year. They're going to get drilled because their attitude in this 
you have pitchers that are really mad. I mean, really mad. Nice. They got a ball in right. their hand, and they're on the mound, and they're gonna they're gonna exact they their throw hard. flesh. You know, right. I mean, and, that, and, 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 and there's going to be a lot of frontier justice going on this year. And I don't care how many memos that baseball sends out because you see these guys on social media. They, they weren't you know, this vocal during, you know, PED situations. They're really vocal about this now. And Alex Wood, um, a pitcher formerly with the, with the Dodgers, you know, he, he said it best. He said, I'd rather face a guy loaded with PEDs than a guy who knows what pitches are coming. And and honestly, you know, these guys are that good that if you let them know what's coming, they're going to do damage. They're that talented. Batting practice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's no another question. thing. There's another thing that's going to start to come out, I think, and, and it depends on how much momentum it gets. So, and Trevor Bauer has been talking about this, and I was talking to someone who I trust that's in an organization over the, over the week and they said, look, the Astros, the other part here is this, this pine tar grip that Bauer's been talking about for, for a couple of years. And he, he sent me a little link to Amazon. He goes, look at this Pelican, Pelican drip grip. He goes, this stuff, they could easily hide. They put it on their hand. Um, they teach classes on this stuff. Um, they, you know, think, look at this. Keep an eye on this. This could be the next thing. And then you look at a guy like Cole coming from Pittsburgh to Houston Good pitcher. I'm not saying he's going to go to the Yankees and be, you know, five ERA guy, but you know what? I'm going to start to wonder if I see Jay Happ and uh, all these guys all of a sudden jack up. I'm going to say, hmm, I wonder what he brought over there. Uh, I don't know if you've heard some of that stuff, but this Pelican drip grip, this uh, this pine tar stuff, the only one that really goes out publicly is Bauer. I wonder if this will be looked into as well. Well, I think I, I think that right now baseball is kind of reeling with everything that's going on, and I think that you know they're going to look right now. Baseball's number one priority is to finish the Red Sox investigation and try to put this to bed. With the number one A priority, trying to negotiate a deal with the players, because above all else, you have a lot of new owners in the game right. Um, they don't want to work stoppage. Um, so the best way to solve a lot of these problems is get on the field and play. Um, and I think that there has to be a belief within the players um, that baseball is policing it better. And we don't know if that's going to happen until you know, we start games. Um, because, look, baseball has been deficient in that. And um, what they let what went on in Houston go way too long, from the tanking all the way through. Um, it, it is not one of the stories of baseball before this hit was the amount of money spent by teams in free agency this offseason after a dormant year last year. And that's because the fans don't want to pay for tanking. They're not buying no. into that. And no. so many teams last year tanked, and the baseball was so top-heavy last year. And when these teams start pulling their their season ticket holders and their sponsors internally, and they're getting results like, hey, we're not paying Ultimate scam. Ultimate yeah, don't scam tell me I, that I almost... three years from now I'm going to, you know, we're going to, you know, hoist the trophy. Stop. I mean, you got to try to win games. And I laughed. 
I laughed when I saw Ken Davidoff, and I know the Wilpons have issues, and I understand why people wouldn't want to work for them when their job was open. But when you put in a New York Post article that one of the reasons why the Mets job people shied away is because the owners had a win-now mindset. With the roster they have, which nobody picked up on uh, except for a few, uh, the pitching they have, and that's a deterrent, I said, we're in a world gone mad. Uh, that tells me, A, it's the biggest scam where a GM wants uh, job security for five years, and they want total autonomy, power control, or their only goal is, hey, if I'm going to do this, I want to do this big and become the next Billy Bean, the next legend uh, in the, you know, either the analytics community or the front office community. Everybody, you know, it's like almost like winning and taking over a team and getting a championship uh, with what you got is a bad thing. It's mind-boggling. There's a small sliver of fans that buy into it. I think a lot of them are younger. I think a lot of them are on Twitter. I think a lot of them are more obsessed with fantasy baseball and gambling than they are the actual game. But they're out there. But I think you're right. I don't think the sliver of the world, which is Twitter, which is Facebook, which is not everybody, understands that Joe and Jane average fan, they don't want to just do McDonald's family Sundays and go watch their team get pounded and and go buy a $20 pretzel. They want to see a team that wins. And That's right. I get I mean, look, for at it. least the feeling that you have a chance that there's a ch- that there's improvement and that there's growth. I mean, this idea, and I've mentioned this often. I mean, if you want to tank, then you're going to have to slash sponsor prices and ticket prices. Because if well, you're not going pass. to do that, then you want me to buy garbage. I'm not going to buy garbage, and that's why nope. you're seeing fans not attend games, but they'll buy the NBA you know, um, league pass or the MLB's, um, you know, pass. They'll watch the games at home. They're not going to get to the ballpark. And Mm. I think that baseball, a lot of teams, I mean, the White Sox came out and said, look, we got to try to win. Yeah, we got a lot of young players. You sneak into the playoffs. But we're trying to win. And they went out and Yeah, this isn't the NFL where the number one pick versus the number six pick might be a difference. Even the NBA. I mean, they act like, you know, if you get the top five pick in the baseball draft, you got uh, Will Chamberlain coming in. It's absurd. You You could still rebuild. You could still do everything. There's like this idea. And again, there are fans that have to say, well, you know, Mets are going for it. They're not rebuilding. I'm like, well, they could still develop players. They could still draft well. They could still hire coaches to actually get these guys in the minor leagues to learn the game so they don't come up and have to learn the game like Ahmed Rosario had to for the first two years of his career at the big league level. You don't have to do that. And, and that's what drives me crazy uh, you know, about that stuff. Now, you know, the other thing that drives me crazy is media conflicts of interest that nobody talks about until it becomes a story. So you were vocal about this Jessica Mendoza thing. And look, Jessica Mendoza's a pleasant uh, person. She's accomplished a lot in the realm of, uh, I believe, Olympic softball, USA team. Uh, it's glad to see, you know, progress is good. You know, women want to get involved in sports, and they do the job, and they're qualified. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think she's particularly great at what she does on Sunday Night Baseball, but she's not the only one, and it's not just women that are not great at what they do on Sunday Night Baseball. So now she works for the Mets. Uh, fine. Uh, she works for the Mets. And she says these comments uh, regarding, uh, uh, you know, fires – but she's saying it as an ESPN employee. It's absurd, Joe. Like, this started with Magic Johnson when he was on NBA Countdown with Simmons and he was working for the Lakers and owned the Dodgers. And I'm sitting here and I'm going, I know that's Magic Johnson, but come on, guys. What's going on? 
and it doesn't get any better. You can't have these and, conflicts and, of interest at all. And, it, and this is what happens. The league's got to stop I, it. The league's got to stop yeah, it. That's well, I think, I think that ESPN has to sit down and say, you either want to work for the Mets or you want to work for us. And we hope you stay with us, but you can't, you can't be in this, an advisor to the Mets because this is what happens. I heard her on the air the other day, and I wrote a story about it. I said, this is where it gets dicey. First of all, Major League Baseball sent an edict to all 30 teams not to speak on this issue. Um, they told they told players not to tweet about it. When when they saw what the social media reaction was, they asked teams not to talk about it. And there were teams like the Dodgers who sent out a statement saying, you know, Major League Baseball told us not to discuss this. We're not going to discuss it. Well, here is Jessica Mendoza basically calling Mike Fires a rat, saying, well, you know, this stuff should just stay in the clubhouse. I'm saying, well, but you're in a, you're the New York, you're an advisor to the New York Mets. Oh no, she's speaking as an ESPN right. employee. No, and she's not. Employee. She is right. speaking as an ESPN employee and an advisor to the New York Mets. Right. That's a problem. Right. And and teams that's had a an huge issue with problem. her. Teams had an issue with her throughout the season. They didn't want her to interview players, be part of. I mean, it's just it's a mess. Sure. The I mean, Mets if I'm if, I, if I'm the Phillies, for example. You know, if I'm the Phillies, for example, and Sunday Night Baseball is the Phillies and Brewers, I don't want them in my clubhouse. Right. <laughs> you know, right. I, I mean, nothing personal. <laughs> I, I don't want you in the clubhouse. You know, if Alex Rodriguez, when he was an advisor for Hal Steinbrenner, if it's Yankees Red Sox on Sunday Night Baseball, and I'm Alex Cora, oh, I even, I even know I've known Alex Rodriguez since he was a kid. I want Alex Rodriguez in my clubhouse. You know, I mean, you're working for the Yankees. I don't want you in here. Right. I mean, it, right. just, it it doesn't work, and and it's not and it's not a good look for anybody. It's not a good look for her. It it, right. it makes her look really bad. And so, I I think you just got to choose what you want to be. I mean, look, if you want to get back in the baseball and be an advisor to the Mets and have a role in in developing the franchise, I think that's great. But you can't be on Sunday Night Baseball too. And you can't go on the air. And really, she didn't do it with this in mind, but she defied the commissioner's edict. You know, there are right. people that get fined for that. There are people that get suspended. Met should and be that fine. wasn't even yeah. a thought process in her mind when she went out and did this. And then, you know, you got Mike Golick, who knows nothing about the situation, you know, with right. the blockhead football mentality of, you know, we've got to keep things under wraps. So what you're saying is you're aghast of cheating. But you don't want anybody to talk about it. So how does cheating right. end? Which People wake up one day and say, you know what? I don't want to cheat anymore. I mean, if I was pregnant, I got a $114 million contract. I'm not going to cheat anymore. Come on, stop. That's not how this stuff works. You know, uh, I mean, this is it's somebody had to talk. And that's how, that's how things change. And it's like right. that in all walks of life, not just sports. Uh, well, listen, what do you got coming up? You, you know, you're always opining about a bunch of stuff. What are the listeners uh, got to look forward to you if they follow you on Facebook? Uh, I don't see you on Twitter too often. Anything you want to let the listeners know about uh, Joe Casale? Well, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm wrapping up football season. I'm getting ready for spring training. So um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to probably divide time between here and Tampa for spring training. So I'll be writing some stuff on um, what I see with um, the Yankees and the Phillies. And, and on this side, 
you know, I mean, we're in, you know, being in Delray Beach, I'm about 25 minutes away from the Astros spring training camp. So that's going to be, uh, that's going to be fun. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what goes on there. And I think, you know, we're going to be at ground zero of, of everything happening there. And I think it's going to be fascinating because, you know, if you remember, you've got, you got Justin Verlander, who's a play the game the right way guy, still there. So I'm going to be very interested to see what his reaction is going to be publicly when people ask him about this. Um, Absolutely. You know, because the, the play the right way guys, you know, that were in that clubhouse, Brian McCann retired, so we don't have to listen to him. But um, it's going to be interesting to see what those guys have to say when clearly they were not playing the right way. So um, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated. I'm, I've been fascinated about the player reaction to this, Mike, because it was it's so much different than it was during the PED scandal. Um, and I'm 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 just that kind of inside baseball stuff fascinates me because I've heard guys just say, "Listen, you know, you don't understand. If these guys know what's coming, they're 500 hitters." You know, I mean, I'm just fascinated by their anger over all this, and I'm going to really be interested to see where that goes during the course of the season. I, you know, I, I said it half jokingly earlier, but I think the guys on Houston are going to have targets on their back all year. And it's going to be fascinating to see. I mean, you know, Mike, you've been around the game, how the game is so much more collegial around the batting cage. Sure. I'm going to, I'm going to be fascinated to see that interaction. Um, and I'm going to – I'm really, that's one of the reasons why I'm going to be watching spring training so intently because I want to see how collegial uh, players are going to be with Astro players going forward. Joe, always interesting, always a good take, always give uh, the listeners something different, different than what I'm offering. Appreciate it. Let's do it again, my friend. Have a great Sunday. Sounds good, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Joe Casal, good stuff. Always appreciate it. Contributor to the show, former agent, sports business consultant on the media side as well. Hey, let's take a quick break. When we return, Hall of Fame talk as we wrap up here on the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. We know Tom Seaver's Hall of Fame numbers on the field, but former teammate Skip Lockwood joined the Talking Mets podcast to share how Tom helped him during his career. I, I can't tell you how much importance uh, Tom Seaver uh, had on my career, helping me to refine my skills and understand the science of pitching. Not that, that, that pitching is scientific, but to understand why you're getting players out, what you're doing that's impacting the, the movement of the baseball, and pitching on the, the count situation, and who, who should be started off with a curveball and who shouldn't and why. And, uh, he, he was such an architect in a, in a baseball uniform. Um, he made a big difference in my career. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Final segment here as we wrap up. I wanted to get into the Hall of Fame. I think Joe Casal, just really good stuff. And I think he gives you probably a different take than what you would expect from me. You know, we have a lot of this similar thoughts, but, uh, you know, I think we also uh, we differ a little bit on the Beltron thing, um, but not that much. I mean, I think it was good to hear some kind of independent 
feeling on on what's going on. So check the Joe Casale. He's not really. He's on uh, C-A-S-A-L-E, Joe Casale. He's on Facebook. That's where he does a lot of his stuff. So, uh, you know, you want to friend request him and see if he accepts. That's up to you. But, um, you know, good guy, a uh, good friend has been contributing in different v- versions of what I've been doing for probably about 13 years. I met him in a Yankees message board back in 2007 or 2008. I think I think 2007. It was really cool stuff. So anyway, Hall of Fame. So if you're not following him on Twitter, Ryan Thibodeau, uh, at not Mr. Tibbs, he's the Baseball Hall of Fame tracker. He, he gets guys on the record, off the record, to share their ballots and um, summarizes it so you get a feel about where the wind is blowing. The announcement will be this week. It'll be on Tuesday. Right now, uh, Ryan has about 171 total ballots that uh, he um, that he has uh, accumulated. I think there's another 300 or so that are out there that will be coming back in. And he's able to track where players are, maybe do a little forecasting, and he shows you where, actually, if you go to at not Mr. Not Mr. Tibbs on Twitter, there's a spreadsheet link to a OneDrive on Excel, and you can see actually uh, who voted for who and and where guys are going. So anyway, so where are we at here on Sunday night, uh, January the 19th, 2020? Uh, as of right now, it looks like the uh, definite uh, Hall of Fame induction will be Derek Jeter. I don't think anybody's surprised, and it's probably very likely, unless there's some kind of you know ballot that goes in blank or somebody decides, hey, I'm not going to make a first-timer get on the Hall of Fame. I think Jeter's going to get 100%. Uh, Larry Walker right now, through these same 171 ballots, is at uh, 85, a little over 85%, 85.4%. And then Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are just short. Barry Bonds has jumped up quite a bit, 73.7, Roger Clemens 72.5. They will not be inducted but I think the good news for them is that they're going to be a big part of next year's ballot. There's really nobody, as I was looking at the ballot, popping on. And uh, I think Clemens and, and Bonds are going to be the stars of next year's show. It'll be interesting to see how the, they make progress. Now, Kurt Schilling's also currently on this ballot at 79.5, which means he would be elected. I think as you get to the unknown ballots that don't get sent to Ryan— those that are not necessarily on social media, I think everybody's going to drop. I think Schilling's going to be uh, well below the 75, um, but close. Uh, I, I predict he'll probably be in the in in the in the now he was at 60.9 percent last year. I think he'll be higher than that, but not quite at 75. Larry Walker was at 54.6. Uh, he's at 85. You know he has a good shot of getting in. I think he's going to fall short. Uh, but he has a good shot at going in, and uh, I believe Clemens and Bonds, of course, they're already beneath the threshold. They're not going to increase. So the only guarantee is Derek Jeter, and I think a lot of the writers want that. I know Anthony Reiber of or Reber was it Reber Anthony Reber of Newsday uh, had said that that's the way it should be. It was a real Yankee propaganda piece. No old due respect to Anthony over at Newsday that you know Jeter should be the only one inducted. Blah blah blah. But. Look, if I had a Hall of Fame vote, I have no problem with Derek Jeter getting a Hall of Fame vote. Um, but I'll tell you this. It's pretty absurd that he get 100%. I mean, Babe Ruth got 95%. Willie Mays slightly below 95 Hank Aaron, 97.8%. Mickey Mantle got 88%. I mean, I don't really know why other than we like a really good narrative and it's a more modern 
Hall of Fame voting class, we would put Jer- Derek Jeter at 100%. Not that he's not a Hall of Famer, but I guess 100% to me should be for someone really special. And I'm not sure Derek Jeter is that. Look, Derek Jeter's Robin Yount. He had uh, less wins above replacement than Robin Yount. He was a bit overrated defensively at times in his career. Uh, and I think if the Cincinnati Reds picked Derek Jeter, it's possible he doesn't even get a ring, and I think we're looking at him completely different. I definitely think he doesn't get 100%. Um, unless the 3,000 hits or the 3,400-plus hits holds a lot of water with the modern uh, voter. Uh, so I, I would say this. I'm not going to go and bash Jeter, but uh, I think the narrative, the 100%, how he's going to be shoved down our throats is going to be a bit much. This is basically Robin Yount who played for the Yankees and is getting treated a lot better than Robin Yount because he's uh, he's Derek Jeter and he played for the Yankees and he played in the modern era of social media and what have you for the most part. Uh, Clemens and Bonds are Hall of Famers. I don't want to hear about steroids. I would vote for them. If you just take the Pittsburgh and Boston years, Clemens would be 26th all-time in wins above replacement just with uh, uh, his uh, win shares in Boston. Uh, And he has 192 wins, the three Cy Young Awards, and MVP. There's no question about it. Um, You know, look at Barry Bonds. If you want to look at Bonds in his his Pittsburgh years, uh, you know, to me, uh, Barry... Uh, and I'll bring him up right now. I'm actually going to try to, you know, grab this real quick. You know, Barry's got, uh, what, 160 or so uh, win shares throughout his career. His Pittsburgh years, let's see if we can get this real quick here. I'm trying to, you know, find it. Uh, shoot, they don't have it in Pittsburgh. Yeah, his Pittsburgh years. Jeez, uh, they don't have win shares here on his Pittsburgh years. But 144 uh, win shares uh, throughout his career. And, uh, you know, yeah, he got a big jump in 2001, 2002, you know, when the steroids, 2003. But, you know, you go to his Pittsburgh years, he was a guay that uh, in his MVP form was an eight-win you know, eight player. You know, that's, those are, you know, nearing towards Mike Trout, you know, a guy who won gold gloves. You know, he wasn't as big of an, a gold glove guy. The guy's got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven MVPs. I mean, just look at the numbers. Uh, his Pittsburgh, uh, you know, 176 home runs with the Pirates. He was a guy that was a 30-30 guy. Uh, you know, he he was an elite player. He was all-worldly with the Giants. And I think if you really want to use the demarcation line, it's really 1998 after the Sosa-McGuire uh, thing that he really went bananas with the steroids. I know it's hard to split that. You know, when did he start? If you The Game of Shadows, was that the Perlman book? Basically, uh, uh, you know, put that there. Who else would I put in the Hall of Fame? Um, Scott Rowland, I think he's very underrated. I'd vote for Rowland. Eight gold gloves. He's top 10 third baseman and wins above replacement. And very similar to Ron Santos, so I'd put him in. And look, Manny Ramirez, to me, was one of the best right-handed hitters uh, of a generation, of the 90s into the turn of the century, over 500 runs. And he put up, and I'll get to Larry Walker, he put up Larry Walker numbers, without Coors Field. Now, you're probably asking, Mike, you know, what do you, if you were a Hall of Fame voter looking at, how do you judge it? Well, I used to just judge it by historic events, having a a dominant period, and um, really left it at that, the historic events and the dominant period, and didn't really balance offense and defense. And now I feel that as I've gotten older, as more data has become available, that you have to balance the offense and the defense. You have to be a complete player. Now, Larry Walker is the first where you'd say, well, why wouldn't you vote for Larry Walker? If you look at him outside of Coors Field, he's a very good player. He's about a 275 to 280 hitter. 
an OPS about 850 to 880. You know, he would average 25 home runs, 94 RBI. Certainly a great arm, gold glove outfielder, uh, very good player. Um, but I don't know if I could just ignore the fact that he had a 348 average and uh, an average of about 36 home runs and over 1,000 OPS and uh, 124 RBIs if he was playing at home. I mean, he was a 381 career hitter at Coors Field. I mean, that's crazy. One year he hit 461. Uh, so I average his, 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 uh, his home numbers. Of course, Montreal and St. Louis are in there. But you just go to Coors Field, he's 381. hit 460 one year. I think it was 1999 at Coors Field. His wins above replacement is definitely top 20 in outfielders. But you take away those Coors stats, I think it's huge. And that's why I wouldn't vote for Larry Walker. Now, I don't have a problem with Larry Walker getting in. But to me, Manny Ramirez was an elite hitter. Yeah, I know you're going to say he failed the steroids. I don't get into the whole steroid thing. I don't ping anybody for that. And I know now we're getting into, well, some people say if they got they got pinched for a test, uh, they won't vote for him. But if there was only uh, suspicion, they will. You know, Manny Ramirez, if, if for that case he got pinched at the end of his career, he was already a Hall of Famer when he got pinched. So I could even argue that. But um, where there are guys that fall short, Kurt Schilling, to me, not enough elite years. Andy Pettit falls even shorter than Schilling in that. Billy Wagner had very good numbers, but if you're a closer, you really got to be the old small hall mindset where you got to make a big difference. And that's you pitch in one inning, saves are cheap, you have to be dominant in the postseason. Mariana Rivera is the gold standard. He's the Babe Ruth, the closers. I don't even think Trevor Hoffman should be in the Hall of Fame. Eckersley is up there too. Goose Gossage. You know, those are the guys, especially Eckersley because of his dominant period and Rivera, a much longer dominant period. You've got to be in their stratosphere for me to vote for you in the Hall of Fame as a closer. Wagner doesn't uh, meet that, mu- that that criteria. He was meh in the postseason, so he's out. Uh, like I said, I wouldn't have put Trevor Hoffman in. Omar Vizquel would have been interesting. Now, I wouldn't put him in. I wouldn't vote for him if he had compiled 3,000 hits. But from a value equation, when you look at the wins above replacement with the offense and the defense— Ozzie Smith is double the player that he is. Ozzie, Ozzie, I was trying to use Ozzie Smith as the barometer. Now, if he had gotten the 3,000 hits, I think because of that threshold, I still would argue and have maybe have a problem because I think we need to start thinking, especially now 500 home runs has become less of a big deal, and I'll get to that in a minute. So if you're making 500 home runs less of a big deal with players playing until their 40s, maybe compiling a little bit, um, I would probably do that with the 3,000 hits, but it would have been much more interesting if Vizquel was able to uh, get to that. Uh, Sheffield and Sosa, they are guys. They have offensive numbers. Under my old criteria, I might have been more inclined to include them, but their defense kills them. Uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, I know Sosa may have had a good arm, but he doesn't shake out, at least at the baseball reference defensive rankings, he doesn't shake out very well. Now, Andrew Jones, Todd Helton, and Jeff Kent are other guys that I think have some cases. Now, Halton gets knocked out because of course. Same deal as Larry Walker, and he doesn't even have the same career as Walker. Jones and Kent, because Jones, Andrew Jones had the 10 gold gloves, and Kent had the nice run with a good chunk of it at second base from the age 29 when he went over to the Giants. Um, but with Jones, the offense was kind of not good enough where the defense-offense combo to me puts him in that stratosphere. Uh, and Kent, to me, um, didn't play. I, I even put like a threshold of 75% of his games at second base, and he didn't come up. I just don't think he had enough time at second. He played some third later in his career. I know he dabbled at first a little bit, but mainly was a second baseman, third baseman. His defense wasn't great. 
Um, he was a tougher one. I, I wanted to give him a longer look, and I know that, you know, as the— and this is the problem, I think, and I think I'll leave you with this on the Hall of Fame note. We'll see how the voters, uh, the final tally is uh, this week. I think the problem is, is that voting for the Hall of Fame has become like free agency, where C and B players in the right market get big contracts, get A or A-plus level contracts. So if you're in the right voting class, and if you want to fill 10 slots on a ballot, I think you're going to see. Now, that might help the steroid guys like Bonds and Clemens, and we'll see, and hopefully they'll get in next year because they're deserving. As much as I dislike Clemens, and I, I don't really like Barry Bonds either, but listen, performance is performance. I'm not here to, to judge character. Um, I think Manny Ramirez, maybe potentially people might start to relook at him a little bit, uh, but I know the failed test probably hurts him with a good chunk of voters, but we'll see how that momentum plays out. But I think we got to stop looking at the ballot for who's on it, and then putting people on or taking them off because, well, it's too crowded. Maybe some people get chopped because if there is a really crowded ballot, we've had some of those over the last couple of years. But um, for me, they're either Hall of Famer or not. doesn't matter if they're the only one on the ballot. And look, you don't have to vote for anybody. There may be some years coming up that you don't vote for anybody. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. And uh, that's what I feel about the Hall of Fame. So if Mike Silva had a Hall of Fame ballot, he would vote for Jeter. He would vote for Bonds. He would vote for Clemens. He would vote for Scott Rowland. That might be the one. I think a very underrated player played in St. Louis and Philadelphia for some bad Philadelphia teams, but I really think he ranks well versus contemporaries who are in the Hall of Fame at his position. It was a great uh, uh, offensive-defensive combination, and a guy that I think if David Wright had stayed healthy and maybe had improved defensively might have been a a good comp to. And then Manny Ramirez, to me, uh, the ultimate right-handed power average hitter without the benefit. I know he played in, in Fenway. Uh, but he, he didn't play in Coors Field, and to me, I'm going to ding, uh, especially pre-Humidor, I'm going to ding the Coors Field guys. Maybe now going forward with the Humidor, I'll have less of, a, of an inclination to do that because the games have become normalized, but you know that's the way I feel about baseball at Coors Field in the 90s, what nightmares those were on road trips when the Mets would go out there. But anyway, listen, we're out of time. I've taken a lot of your time. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. I'll be back with another podcast as soon as the Mets hire a manager. We'll see when that happens. If they don't hire before Thursday, there'll be a throwback Thursday this coming Thursday. I think it's a good one. I promise you on that. And then we'll have our next podcast on Sunday. And then we will take off for Super Bowl weekend. We always take off for Super Bowl weekend. Watch the Mets hire a manager on Super Bowl Sunday. No, I don't think they'll do that. But I think they'll have somebody. I think somebody. You're going to start hearing some concrete stuff this week. So I think we'll be back uh, sooner than you think. Of course, I want to thank Joe Casal. I want to thank all of you, the listeners. You can check me all the time at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me an email, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm out there. I'm on it. Enjoy it. And listen to this podcast every week and give me feedback. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We'll be back with another Tucky Mets podcast soon. Take care, everybody.